This podcast was originally the audio for a work of the same name for the Nearly On Red YouTube channel, found at youtube.com slash c slash nearly on red. Though not intended to be a standalone podcast, viewers frequently consume my videos for their audio content only, so I have duplicated my work in this format to hopefully save people a step. A full list of content and platforms can be found at nearlyonred.com or the short link nearly.red, N-E-A-R-L-Y dot R-E-D. Enjoy! Welcome to the Not Quite Daily Show, Spring 2018, Episode 4. My name is Theta, and today we have a special episode in which we will collect a number of external references and symbols in the first half of Darling and the Franks and try to tie them all together. This is not an attempt to enumerate every single symbol or myth reference. This show is absolutely replete with metaphor and thematic patterns, so to discuss them all would take hours. Rather, this will focus on some direct invoking of our own world stories and how they relate to each other and some principal symbolic patterns in the series. We will also suggest a destination for the anime as a whole based on these patterns. This episode does contain spoilers for episodes 1 through 15 of Darling in the Franks, uh, which is structurally the first half of the show. Uh, please don't watch if you aren't at least that current. The key to understanding the interplay between our symbols and myth references is the book displayed in episode 12 during Ichigo's flashback. This book is The Golden Bow, and thus we will start with this work and what it suggests, tying it into Darling of the Franks as we go along. The Golden Bow was an anthropology text first published in the late 19th century by the Scottish anthropologist Sir James George Fraser. Its enduring influence, however, is not because of its impact on anthropology, but from its impact on the literary world. You may ask, what is the nature of this book that it will show up as a reference in Japanese animation nearly 130 years later? The Golden Bow states its purpose as a study in magic and religion, but it's the manner in which Fraser pursues this study that makes the work singular. At its heart, The Golden Bow is an exhaustive attempt to draw a comparison between stories from many peoples and times and show how they are related to one another. Even in the abridged versions, it's hard not to be awed by the amount of examples of a certain practice or mythology, and in how many different places or variations it will appear. Fraser was especially interested in how mythologies about the way the world worked were related to the rituals that they inspired, and how those rituals, in turn, informed the mythologies surrounding them. The reason this was so influential to writers was how strongly it suggests that certain storytelling patterns are universal essential in some way to how humanity made sense of the world and their place in it. Stories are a way for us to be entertained, yes, but the ones that resonate do so because we see the patterns of the story in ourselves. We see the characters' struggles and flaws and victories in our own lives. Ancient priests told stories to help explain the world to their people. Modern storytellers do the same thing. Now, not everything in The Golden Bow is going to be relevant to Darling and the Franks, so I will try to explain what I think is relevant. One is related to the huge number of belief systems and practices of fertility cults. These stories and rituals grew out of a concept that Fraser called sympathetic magic, part of the first stage of human culture as he saw it. Sympathetic magic is basically like influences like, where man believed he could 
say, cause rainfall by sprinkling water on the ground, or heal a broken bone by uh, wrapping up a broken stick. Chief among the sympathetic rituals are the practices that Fraser called fertility rites. Though many varieties existed in many places and times, all are united by their purpose, ensuring the rebirth of the world each spring, increasing the productivity of nature and livestock and crops, and the renewal of some fundamental vitality in the world. This vitality was often believed to be contained in the singular person of a king or priest. He was responsible for the renewal, for the restoration of the land. Like the patron of an entourage, his job was to make it rain. In fact, many believe that the vitality and fertility of the land was bound up with the vitality or fertility of their high priest or king, who was often the same person. They believe that as their priest king goes, so goes the world. One of the examples Fraser even cites is the Mikado of Japan, who during part of their history was extremely restricted in behavior and daily life, going so far as not being able to clip his hair or nails because doing anything taboo or unsacred could devastate the entire country. This is that notion of sympathetic magic. When the priest king is hale and healthy, young and virile, all is well. But what to do when he's not? What happens when he ages or takes ill or ends up being infertile? Surely the world itself is then in peril. Now take that idea and look at Darling and the Franks. The normal pattern of mankind and nature, where newer generations replace the old, has been upturned. The old linger and wither, while the young are expended and controlled. The world at large seems to reflect the fertility of the rulers, or rather the lack thereof. Rather than being green and vibrant, we have deserts and abandoned cities and unsafe oceans and lifeless plantations. The barrenness of the world is embodied by the barrenness of its priest kings. Indeed, the person of Papa seems very much like a priest king who embodies both spiritual and political authority. There is great reverence and significance given to him, and much pomp and ceremony surround Papa and the eight councils' interaction with their people. The processions we see feel very much like religious rituals, and Ape's wardrobe seems to be inspired directly by priestly vestments. We learned already that the clothing the adults all wear may be designed to cover up how aged they all are. Considering the entire Ape Council is fully encased, it's not a stretch to imagine that they are quite old and decrepit themselves, matching the wasteland that they preside over. So, the priest kings of Darling and the Franks are no longer hale and healthy, and the world reflects this. How did old fertility cults deal with this? Well, it's simple. You sacrifice the old priest king, and a new priest king takes his place, one who more appropriately embodies the vitality they need. Hence the expression, the king is dead, long live the king. This might seem really odd to our modern sensibilities, but it was quite normal to the cultures where it took place. After all, didn't the world itself die each year, only to be reborn? Why should the role of the priest king, who represents this vitality, be any different? There were usually three ways this was accomplished. Sometimes this death was part of a regular, expected ritual. There are any number of religions and myths where there is a sacrificial or dying god who must die and be either reborn or replaced. Thus, the priest king reigned for a time, or until it was determined they were no longer fit, then they submitted to sacrifice. But sometimes it was decided in the second way in the form of a king killing his predecessor and taking his place, only to one day be killed himself. How many stories have we seen where becoming the leader of a kingdom or a tribe or some other group involves killing the current leader? 
How better to prove that you are a better representative of the vitality of the world than by besting the one who claims that title? Then there's the third way, where something besides the priest king was sacrificed in order to represent the priest king's death and rebirth. This is basically sympathetic magic taken one step further. Sometimes this was sacrificial livestock or crops, sometimes it was captured enemies or slaves, and sometimes it was a special class of sacrificial people who were privileged and treated as sacred during their life, but who were kept apart from the rest, surrounded by taboos so that their sacredness would not be disrupted. That way, they could still one day fulfill their destiny of dying in place of the priest king to renew his vitality and therefore the world's. In Darling of the Franks, this resembles very strongly the role of the parasites in the society. They are privileged and kept apart, not even interacting with the caretakers that see to their needs. They have extensive grounds and a large bath and elaborate meals and a huge library. Their needs are seen to, and then some, but their daily lives are completely controlled with the ultimate fate of sacrificing themselves for the good of their society. Indeed, the very act of piloting the Franks seems to age them, to draw out their vitality and youth. In this society, they are treated in some ways as holy and special, and in other ways as completely disposable. Because of this symbolic role, the parasites and the details around them are imbued with tons of fertility symbolism. Their Frank's names are related to flowers, and each of the pilot roles is referred to as the sex parts of the flower, pistol, and stamen. Flowers have a long history as symbolizing fertility. It's the reason that brides carry bouquets. Flowers herald the advent of spring and return of life to the world, so the association was a natural one for every temperate culture to make. They are the rebirth side of the death and rebirth theme that dominates storytelling. Of course, the parasites are not flowers growing freely in the world, they are cultivated. Kokoro has her little greenhouse where she grows exotic plants, but if you pull back just a bit, you can see that the parasites themselves essentially live in a greenhouse. They are flowers of a different kind, yet just as carefully grown. Hachi even refers to the act of cutting Mitsuru as pruning, and they replaced the dead lilacs in episode 8 with new ones, just as they themselves replaced the dead squad. The parallels are many. This, I think, is also why there is such a sexual undercurrent to the piloting process. Nothing represents fertility quite as directly as the actual act. What's more, the sexuality is not something the parasites themselves even understand at first. The suggestive nature of connecting and the posing involved don't strike them as odd. Human sexuality is not something they have been taught or quite grasp. No, it's purely the audience the sexual theme is aimed toward. We are to understand that certain moments are representative of sexuality and all of its meaning, even though the parasites themselves start out ignorant. As the show has progressed, though, our squad becomes less ignorant. They begin to have and understand feelings toward one another, and being caught in the throes of puberty not only aids this understanding, but is also symbolically linked to the idea of flowers coming into bloom. It is as though their potency as fertility and vitality stand-ins has been increasing as well. Then there is Kokoro's discovery and fascination with the maternity book. There is the prevalent idea of mixing blood, which is a euphemism for having offspring. And the principal symbol of the Jin bird, a part of Chinese mythology traditionally meant to represent marriage. The plant theming in this series does not end with flowers. There is another, more specific symbol that seems to directly represent Zero Two, or Hero, or maybe the both of them together, and that is the symbol of mistletoe. 
It's the second image of the entire series, second only to the image of the Jin bird, both in chronological order and symbolic importance. The tree with mistletoe figures prominently in Zero Two and Hero's shared past and memories. The name of the facility that houses the parasites is Mistletine, which is another word for mistletoe. And finally, the mirror that Hero gives to Zero Two, which itself represents the state of their relationship at various points, has a design of mistletoe on the back of it. Mistletoe is being invoked quite deliberately. You may only be familiar with mistletoe tradition as a thing at Christmas that people kiss under, but mistletoe actually has a vast cultural history, showing up everywhere from the Celts of Northern Europe to the Aino of Japan, and was used as medicine, despite the fact that mistletoe is actually poisonous. They believed it made great medicine because they associated powerful regenerative properties with the plant. Why they did so is related back to that idea of sympathetic magic and fertility rites, so once again, the Golden Bow has a lot to say. You see, mistletoe is a parasite. What's more, it is evergreen, while the trees it attacks and grows off of are deciduous. This means that it blends in with the foliage in warm months, but when the leaves fall off its host, it remains green, seemingly alive and healthy, while the tree and the greater forest around it has withered. Winter was an ominous time for pre-industrial societies, and so when the world around them looked barren or ruined, mistletoe's ability to stay vibrant and full of vitality inspired a certain reverence in the ancients. Celtic and Germanic peoples believed that the mistletoe actually stored the essence of the trees it was found in, that the tree's vitality would, in winter, retreat into the mistletoe, which remained green throughout the cold and bare months. In spring, as the tree began putting forth leaves again, it was believed that this was the essence of the tree returning from the mistletoe into the rest of the plant. This gave it strong associations with rebirth and with fertility, a belief that a type of regenerative and restorative power resided in the mistletoe itself. Using it for both medicinal and ceremonial reasons naturally followed. In Darling of the Franks, you can already see how well that plays with the fertility and rebirth symbols that we've already discussed. The adults and ape may be like those trees in winter, and have even stopped having children, yet the parasites still retain youthful vitality and, it seems, the desire and ability to reproduce. Like the mistletoe, they may be holding that fertility in reserve through these barren times, ready to return it to the world when spring comes again. Mistletoe also figures prominently in a mythology that the show has directly referenced. In episode 15, the Ape Council makes an offhand reference to something called Hringhorn. That name refers to a ship in Norse mythology, greatest of all ships, and eventually destined to be the funeral pyre for its owner, a god named Baldr. How did Baldr die? He was killed by mistletoe. The story goes that he had a dream of his own death, and his mother, Frigg, learns of it and sets out to prevent it. She does this by going to every creature and object in the world and asking them to vow never to hurt Baldur. They all agree. However, she neglected to ask this of Mistletoe. Loki, god of mischief, learns this little detail. He makes a weapon out of Mistletoe and goes to where the gods are gathered. Due to Baldur's new invulnerability, the gods have made a pastime out of hurling things at him, knowing he couldn't be harmed. Loki presents the mistletoe weapon to Baldur's twin brother, who is blind, and he hurls it along with everyone else. Because Frigg neglected to get mistletoe's cooperation, the weapon pierces and kills Baldur. In some versions of this mythology, this death of Baldur is the very act that heralds the coming of Ragnarok, 
Ragnarok is the Twilight of the Gods, a battle between many powers that leaves most of the gods dead and many realms destroyed. Midgard, the realm of humans, suffers a worldwide flood. However, after this climactic battle, the land returns fertile and green. Some previously dead gods, like Baldur, return to life, and the two humans who survive begin to repopulate the world. Does that sound at all like the death and rebirth and fertility patterns we've been discussing so far? Fraser seemed to think so, and spent some time connecting this myth with the profusion of fertility rites he found across Northern Europe, including ones that involved the use of mistletoe. Now, Darling of the Franks is evoking mistletoe on purpose, and they're evoking Norse mythology on purpose also. Indeed, some may find a resemblance between the damaged plantations in episode 15 with that of Yggdrasil, the world tree that connects the realms in the Norse cosmology. If that's true, then their states here seem to recall Ragnarok as well, since in both cases they are being damaged. The 26th plantation even looks like a planet being split apart. But I also want you to note from that story that mistletoe isn't just a great symbol of renewal and life returning to the world in spring. In the Balder myth, it's also the one thing that can kill an otherwise unkillable god. So where does that leave us? Well, the parasites in general seem representative of fertility, owing to all the flower symbolism and the sexual undercurrent. They also seem a lot like the sacrificial people in some cultures, holy and sacred and kept apart, yet ultimately doomed as they have their youth and lives drained from them. In addition, Hero and Zero Two in particular seem to be represented by the symbol of the mistletoe. Mistletoe is at once both the lone green thing in winter, the thing that holds the fertility of the world in its care until spring, and it is also the one thing that can destroy an otherwise immortal god. Meanwhile, our ape council stands in for the priest kings of old, and rather than submitting to a newer generation and a newer king, they have held on to the power and position well past their years. They seem to have made themselves effectively immortal, but their age and waning fertility means that the world they rule over is barren as well, sinking into deserts and abandoned towns and the lifeless cities of the plantations. Rather than allowing their replacement and permitting the natural cycle of death and rebirth to play out, they have sacrificed others in their place. Perhaps this works for a time, but where does the path go from here? To answer that, let us look at a pair of conversations that seem odd on the surface, but take on added meaning when considering all the symbolism that we've discussed. These dialogues are between Hero and Zero Two back in episode five, once in the middle of the episode, and then again at the end. Hero has been showing Zero Two around Mistletine, and at the end explains that it actually rains inside the dome sometimes. Zero Two is fascinated and demands he make it rain right away, but Hero explains that he can't, that Papa and the others decide when it happens. Like the priest kings of old, the power to bestow rain upon their land resides within the Ape Council. The land's fertility is linked to them. Zero Two is disappointed, and Hero is thoughtful for a moment. At the end of the episode, she gets her wish, staying out in that rain until morning. When Hero meets her this time, she asks him to make it rain again, before remembering that he can't. Then Hero says something curious, that he can't say that for sure yet. Perhaps the vital power of the rain is not exclusively the domain of Papa and Ape. Perhaps it can be claimed. And so, a logical path is suggested by Fraser's observation of fertility cults, in which, as we discussed, there were three ways the vitality of the priest king could be renewed. 
In the first way, the death of the priest-king and his replacement can be part of a regular pattern, mirroring the death and rebirth of the natural world. But in this plantation society, those in power have upset this order. They have seemingly opted for the third sacrificial pattern, having the parasites and the fertility they represent die in their place. What remains then is the second pattern. The priest-king must be killed by his successor. Maybe all the parasites will play a part, but Zero Two and Hero especially seem fated to bring Spring and the natural order back to the world. It is fitting that their story and tension should be primarily romantic, and that their relationship be especially reflective of sexuality and the fertility that invokes. Thus, the mistletoe returns the life force it has preserved through the cold months and causes the world to be born anew. But to do this, they must go through the council, and particularly Papa. They seem unkillable, like Balder from the myth, but even he had the one thing that could bring him low. Once these priest kings are replaced by those hale and hardy and fertile, the earth itself can return to springtime. Just like the world after Ragnarok, when the old gods are brought low, the land comes back green and healthy, to be repopulated by the lone survivors. So it seems the path is clear. The young must supplant and replace the old. They must claim the power of the rain for themselves. The king is dead. Long live the king. Title music by Russell J. Crowe. Other music licensed from the artists at Audio Jungle. Script, performance, and editing by Theta. Theta is played by Redacted. Original video can be found at youtube.com slash C slash Nearly on Red. And a full list of credits is available at nearlyonred.com. Until next time, thanks for everything.